Hello, everybody. Welcome to Lucky Number Seven, Episode Seven of the Right Take. I'm Eric Landrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff, and I am still here. I'm glad to report that I am still here, able to co-host this particular episode with you, Jacob. I am not yet in jail, although at the rate things are going with these ridiculous coronavirus regulation enforcements, mask rules, and whatnot. I may not be here much longer, honestly, after uh, what happened. I, I'm already starting to feel a little bit more of the heat from the masked Nazis that are running around. So I got I had to start this episode with this story. So a day in the life of Eric, who does not wear masks anywhere. And we are here in the D.C., North Virginia area, which probably cares more for these precious mask rules than any other area in the country. The bureaucrats, the swamp rats here in D.C., they love to enforce their own rules and wave their own rules around and strong-arm other people into following their rules because they're the ones who make the rules. So I don't wear a mask anywhere I go. I do not wear it on the metro. I don't wear it in the grocery store. I don't even wear it in a lot of uh, even a few restaurants here and there. And I, for the most part, don't get a lot of pushback from certain employees, especially the grocery store. I'm a regular there. They all recognize me at this point. They're not going to tell me to leave. But I get on the metro on Friday morning, right? And... The usual seats that I like to take are, you know how at the both ends of each Metro car, Jacob, there's the portion of the car that could be converted into the uh, the cab for the driver. You yeah, know, yeah. There's the control panel because uh, each train car has the potential to serve as the front as the lead car. When that portion is not in use, that little doorway is open and there's an extra row of seats there that you know people can sit in because more seats, right? More seats during rush hour and in this case, more seats for social distancing. It's behind a dark tinted glass partition. A little bit of privacy. It's at the end of the car. It's out of the way. I like those seats whenever they're available. Unfortunately, I was not able to get those seats on this one. This is Friday morning going into work. They were taken. There was someone else sitting in those seats. So I just grab another uh, seat that's a little further away. It's facing that end of the car, but it's about maybe 10-ish feet away. So I sit in the seat, and it's not a very long commute for me from my metro stop to work. And I'm on my phone. I'm just kind of you know scrolling through messages and whatnot. And I look up for the first time, and I just glance in the direction of the person who is sitting in those seats behind this dark, tinted glass partition. And I see right away the person is leaning very far to their left out of the seat, not like a slight lean, leaning comically, like their whole body at a 45-degree angle, is leaning out of the seat and is staring right at me <laughs> from 10 feet away. And I, I couldn't even quite tell if it was even a man or a woman. They're wearing like a bulkier you know, winter coat because it's cold out. Glasses, obviously a mask, a dark, plain black mask, and short gray hair on the top of the head that could either be a gentleman's haircut or, or, you know, the short dyke haircut. I can tell which. I genuinely couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. But they're just staring at me. I'm like, okay, cool. I look down at my phone. I thought maybe it's just a fluke because people on the metro will look at other people. That's just kind of the thing, you know. I look back about a few minutes later, still staring at me, just leaning, comically leaning out of their seat and staring at me. I look away. A few minutes later, look back, still staring at me. And I'm like, okay, at this point, it's clear this person is staring directly at me because I am not wearing a mask. It's painfully obvious. <laughs> you, know, you said a while ago, Jacob, there are a lot of people where you take one look at them, you, know, you just get a good gauge of their physiognomy, and you can tell just by looking at them without them saying a word that they're a Biden voter. I definitely got that feeling with this individual. Again, not even knowing their gender, but seeing mask, Biden voter, glaring at me because I'm not wearing a mask. So I went ahead. I had my phone kind of down in my lap, 
I was able to tilt it just up enough. I turned it to silent mode so the flash will, the camera click sound won't go off. And I take a very covert picture of this person and perfectly capture this picture. I'm probably going to post it to our Telegram channel in a little bit just so you guys can see this. It's hilarious picture just bundled up, arms crossed, leaning over and just staring at me. <laughs> it almost kind of reminds me of the Bernie Sanders mittens meme from the inauguration. Yeah. Like it's kind of got the makings of that meme. And then we are getting to my stop. And as the train is pulling into the station, I very faintly hear a voice say, say cheese. And I look up and this person is holding up their big bulky smartphone and is taking multiple pictures of me. (laughs) What in the world? uh, Exactly. So, And from the voice, obviously, I can tell, okay, it's a woman. And I'm not going to hide it. I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not going to hide my face. So I just kind of grin and chuckle and shook my head. Then I stand up and I walk up to the door, you know, the nearest door, which puts me a little bit closer to this woman. And at this point, she puts her phone away and just kind of sits upright again, still kind of glaring at me. I turn to her and I smile and I say, did you at least get my good side? (laughs) To which she shook her head, you know, obviously not amused and said, I don't think there's a good side to people like you. (laughs) uh, Go ahead. uh, No, say what you were going to say, please. So that's so similar to the experience that me and a couple of friends had. We went to the Stop the Steal rally. This was the... I think it was the first one. So we're getting we're, – we're on the metro. We go down. Of course, all the Trump support, uh, supporters, about 10 percent of them are wearing masks. Now, as we get on the trains, everyone puts their mask on. But just in the waiting – you know, while we're waiting on our train to come, nobody's wearing a mask. Well, the train – our train pulls up, and there's this girl that looks, and she sees that it's a bunch of maskless people. And her face, she just freaks out. She just gets terrified. She grabs her stuff, and she goes and runs to the corner and sits in, the, in the, one of the corner seats. So I purposely make sure that I lead our group into a beeline straight where she's sitting, <laughs> just to, you know, just to just to mess with her. I, I don't, I, I literally don't care. I'm telling the story because I think it's funny, but I will, I am curious. At the very least, I'm not worried, but I'm curious. What is she planning on doing with these pictures of me? Is she going to share them in a group chat with all of her uh, fat boomer friends and say, "Oh, look at this little brat not wearing a mask"? <laughs> she going to post it on Twitter? I mean, I'm not going to care because I'm not on Twitter anymore. I'm not going to see it. I genuinely hope the third option is the is the one that happens. I really hope there's some stupid anonymous tip line that you can send pictures of mask violators to, and she sent my pictures there. I would love to end up on some BS MPD Metro watch list for not wearing a mask. I think one of the main themes of the entirety of the Biden administration can definitely be. These are our priorities. We got our priorities in line. We're enforcing mask rules. And then we're doing stuff like what the clown known as Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is doing now. Now he's in charge of the military. He's been confirmed as the Secretary of Defense. He's in charge of the Pentagon. So Lloyd Austin, who it bears repeating, this guy is a former Raytheon board member. So President Eisenhower is definitely rolling over in his grave knowing that the military industrial complex is alive and well. Lloyd Austin has ordered a 60-day stand-down for the entirety of the United States military in order to investigate, quote, domestic extremism in the military ranks. This, this is just unbelievable. First off, you got to understand the meaning of the word – of the phrase stand-down in military terms. Stand-down means you are no longer at a state of readiness for anything to happen. It literally means uh, this is complete. This is all across the entire military here and abroad. So we are now no longer on alert in the South China Sea or dealing with Iran or whatever. We are now the entire military is effectively shut down for two months to essentially get lectured to about diversity or about how being against racial identity politics is a bad thing. Whatever. He doesn't. Even, it's very, very vague. His, his official announcement of the stand down order in a tweet from at SecDef. Where he says, quote, 
Today, I met with senior leaders to discuss extremism in the military. As a first step, I'm ordering a stand-down to occur over the next 60 days so each service, each command, and each unit can have a deeper conversation about this issue. It comes down to leadership. Everyone's. But this was hilarious that even the FBI has presented evidence, obviously not directly refuting this, but the FBI has already disproven this entire ridiculous theory, uh, not only right-wing terrorism, but right-wing terrorism in the military. The FBI, and this was further corroborated by the New York Times. In 2020, the FBI opened 143 criminal cases into current or former service members. Of those 143, 68 of them were due to, quote, domestic extremism. Of those 68, only a quarter... That's 17 total cases were due to, quote, white nationalists. So 17 out of 68 out of 143, 17 cases out of 1.3 million total active duty and reserve members of the military. So this clown who is in charge of our military now has shut down the entire military for two months over 17 cases of white nationalism over the last year in the military. This It just blows my mind that, again— we can make fun of them all they want for ranting and railing against the white nationalist alt-right boogeymen, but now the military is involved and in a manner that actively hurts our standing internationally. So say if China invades Taiwan tomorrow, we are caught with our pants down and are not able to do anything about this. Now, I'm not saying that, of course, we should go to war for Taiwan, but the bottom line being this is sending a really bad message to our adversaries and our allies as well that China and Iran – I guess if you want to consider Russia an enemy, Russia, North Korea for that matter, can just run amok and do whatever they want while we're just over here lollygargling about non-existent white nationalist boogeyman. It, just, it sends such a terrible message that we are going to focus more on these stupid woke politics than actually showing our strength. And again, not to be the world's policeman, but we do have a responsibility to be able to counter China and to counter Iran and these other dangerous nations that obviously could not care less. You know for a fact that China – is not holding lectures among their military no. about yellow privilege or no, they're, domestic what they're extremism. doing is they're creating biologically enhanced super soldiers. This is from in, this is an NBC News article. Um, this is from December third, twenty twenty. China has done human testing to create biologically enhanced super soldiers, says top U.S. official, and they're citing the secretary was it the director of national intelligence under Trump, John Ratcliffe, and he was talking about how they are doing experiments on their soldiers to create super almost give them superhuman capabilities so i mean i don't know if any of this is going to be scientifically possible but the point being like you said china's not they're not focused on all this stuff and you got the like uh, biden rescinded the executive order that trump made banning transgenders from the military they're uh, focusing on promoting women getting women into you know the, the top tier positions while we're focused on identity politics making sure we have equal representation for women transgenders transgenders of color and everything else under the sun, China is actually focusing on what the military is supposed to do, which is be a fighting force, be a killing force. But the problem, though, is China is a united nation. They're, they are one people. In the United States, we have to go through all these hoops to make all these different groups feel like the U.S. military actually represents them and is their military and isn't another group's military, which uh, really speaks to bigger issues, you know, bigger challenges that our society faces. Oh, so by the way, one more thing before we move on about Austin, who's now the Secretary of Defense, mind you. He's one of only six cabinet nominees by Joe Biden that has been confirmed by the Senate. 
You know how many senators voted to confirm this guy's SecDef, Jacob? Uh, probably about 90. 93 senators. <laughs> 93 senators voted to confirm Lloyd Austin. That is by far the most out of all the other nominees right now. 93 voted in favor. Five senators were not present, all Republicans who went on to vote for other Biden nominees. They were not present, presumably due to COVID or whatever. Only two senators voted against Austin, and that is Mike Lee of Utah and our man Josh Hawley in Missouri, who uh, they both had voted against every nominee up to Buttigieg for Secretary of Transportation. Then Lee voted for Buttigieg. So Josh Hawley still voted no. He is the one senator left who has a perfect streak. He has voted no on every single one of Biden's nice, nominees. Nice. So let's go for that perfect streak, Josh. Go for the kill streak. Let's go. But I just had to say that 93 senators, including this blew my mind. I didn't even think about this till the other day. That means even Rand Paul voted for this guy. Yeah, but, you know, I guess... I guess all of these moves by the Biden administration is okay in the end because, you know, people voted for him, right? He got 81 million votes. He more votes than any other president. He got elected totally legitimately, right, Jacob? He won this election clean and fairly. Right. There was, right? There was no, there was no fraud. There was not every single vote that the AP says that he got, he got. There's no, we just want to make, we want to make sure that our audience understands that when the AP says something that's 100% accurate. So there, there was no fraud. There was no electoral fraud whatsoever in this election. None whatsoever. And that's exactly why Time magazine had to produce a 30-page article informing us that there was totally no fraud. And anything you could call fraud wasn't really fraud. It was the opposite of fraud. So surely a lot of you guys have heard of this insane article from Time magazine by an author named Molly Ball. Uh, it's a long article, as I said. It's easily around 30 pages long. Don't know how many words that is. We're not going to read through the whole thing, but the key segments that must absolutely be discussed here. So it opens with, quote, a weird thing happened right after the November 3rd election. Nothing. The nation was braced for chaos. Liberal groups had vowed to take to the streets, planning hundreds of protests. Right-wing militias were girding for battle, question mark, okay, in a poll before Election Day, 75% of Americans voiced concern about violence. Instead, an eerie quiet descended. As President Trump refused to concede, the response was not mass action, but crickets. Okay. A little further down here. It starts off kind of lame, but it gets really, really good. It eventually quotes President Trump to say, quote, It was all very, very strange, Trump said on December 2nd. Within days after the election, we witnessed an orchestrated effort to anoint the winner even while many key states were still being counted. And this is great. If you actually read the article, you will see at this very next point, there's a paragraph break for this sentence, quote, in a way, Trump was right, end quote. That's not a sentence within a larger paragraph. That's paragraph break, that sentence, paragraph break. They made that its own entirely separate paragraph, those six words, just to drive the point home. The article then goes on to say in the next paragraph, quote, There was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, one that both curtailed the protests and coordinated the resistance from CEOs. Both surprises were the result of an informal alliance between left-wing activists and business titans. But Jacob, I, I thought the left hated Wall Street and big business, didn't they? They hate, they hate Wall Street and big business if Wall Street and big business doesn't support critical race theory and intersectionality. Uh, or if they're at least willing to work with them to rig an election. It's just, it just goes on and on and on. There is so much 
in this article. They, they, the language they use is just mocking us to this point. A little further down, it says, quote, That's why the participants want the secret history of the 2020 election told, even though it sounds like a paranoid fever dream, a well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies, working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. In the very next sentence, this this is the punchline from the whole article that everyone has been citing, and rightfully so. Time Magazine, ladies and gentlemen, the premier political magazine in America, if not the world. Quote, they were not rigging the election. They were fortifying it. <laughs> Democracy only works if the approved candidates win. Exactly. What exactly were they so afraid of in this election? Fortifying. First, I got to can, can we just talk about that fortifying use for a second? So if I go rob a bank, right, and I steal $1 million from the bank and I take and it's mine and I'm hiding it somewhere, I can just say if they arrest me and put me on trial, I can say, no, 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 no. I wasn't robbing the bank. The money clearly was not safe in that vault. It's safer in my personal safe, so I was fortifying that money. You're <laughs> right. welcome, bigots. Like, this is insane. They're literally admitting to changing rules and laws, which obviously is in reference to at the statewide level in many key swing states like Pennsylvania and others, where secretaries of state unilaterally changed election laws to change the process with regards to vote by mail and so many other things. They're admitting they changed the laws, steered media coverage, and controlled the flow of information. With obviously the biggest one being the Hunter Biden story, because you remember telling me, Jacob, after the election, we were having one of our brainstorming sessions, and you mentioned when the Hunter Biden laptop story first broke, you looked at it and said, oh, this is it. Biden's done. This is his equivalent yeah, of Hillary's that emails. That was the October surprise. That was his equivalent of the Hillary's email scandal. Then a few days later, when you saw when Twitter was outright, they banned the New York Post. They auto-deleted any and every tweet that linked to that article. You saw that, and then you said, oh, n- now I know Biden's going to win because they are burying this story. Like they, if they had buried the Hillary Clinton email story, Hillary would have won, right? Exactly, yeah. It's just unbelievable. This article, and again, we're not going to read the whole article because it's a very long piece, but we will put a link in the description below. If anything, I encourage you guys to like copy the wording, copy all the words of the article and save it into a Word document or something because you know Time Magazine is eventually going to delete this piece saying, oh, it was generating right-wing conspiracy theories. But it goes on. It goes on. It names people. It names names, including uh, former members of Congress and you know strategists and whatnot. One of them, uh, they literally label this man the architect, Mike Podhorzer. Quote, sometime in the fall of 2019, Mike Podhorzer became convinced the election was headed for disaster and determined to protect it. Let me translate that for you guys, for those of you outside the D.C. Beltway who don't speak journalist, elite Time Magazine journalist. Headed for disaster translates to he saw Trump was going to win. He knew that Trump was going to get reelected because in a fair election, because that's what happened. Trump got reelected. He won. They had to rig this election in order to take it away from him because they can't stand the idea of Trump winning. And they keep saying this holier than thou approach. Well, Trump is assaulting democracy. Trump is a threat to our institution. No, no, no. He's a threat to your precious little uniparty. He is a threat to your cabal's hold on every aspect of our society, on government, on institutions, the media, Wall Street, you guys, both parties. This is, again, one of the greatest things Trump did. He exposed that both parties are in on this charade. There is no, there's no real dichotomy here. There is no 
actual choice between the Republican and Democrat Party. They are the same thing. Their leaders are the same. McConnell, McCarthy, Pelosi, Schumer, they're all in on this together. They're all buddy buddies on Capitol Hill. Trump, just by virtue of his getting elected alone, the moment he won the election in 2016, that right there is already one of the greatest accomplishments in American history. And just by virtue of getting elected, he completely upended all their plans for America, whether the mass migration, bailouts for their buddies on Wall Street, horrible trade deals, outsourcing of American jobs, what have you. He came in and kicked over the table and said, your party is over. The people are back in charge. They could not stand that this working class, blue collar, forgotten men and women, silent majority revolution happened in 2016 and was going to happen again. He already won at least 11 million more votes than he did last time which is more than any other Republican candidate and certainly more than any other incumbent president. He did not – even that alone is not a rejection of his mandate. He still clearly has overwhelming popular support. They just managed to gin up more fake votes for Biden in the key states that mattered, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, probably Nevada, because they were so hell-bent. They went all in on this one, every single tool at their disposal, social media censorship, the smear campaigns, the changing of the election laws – Foreign interference, foreign donors, everything, the Soroses, they went all in and finally beat him because, you know, he is just one man. He can't defeat literally the entire world. But even then, they only barely pulled it off. And that's what they can't stand. And they know this is not going away anytime soon, this undercurrent that supported him. But they are back in charge now. They have the White House. They have both houses of Congress. They've already been in control of the media and big tech. This article is – it's many things. Some people are, of course, jokingly saying, oh, this is a confession. This is like the evil villain monologue where he confesses his entire evil plan for a 10-minute rant before the hero inevitably gets the upper hand because he wouldn't stop talking. But in this case, it's more, it's less of a monologue confession and more of bragging. They're pounding their chest and saying, huh, what are you going to do about it, you stupid plebeians? What are you going to do about it? Our guy's already in. We won. Yeah, we rigged the election. So what? What are you going to do? Elect another Trump? We're going to make sure that's never going to happen again. This is just – Well, it reminds me of whenever Trump was accusing Obama's administration of spying on his campaign and it came out that Carter Page had been under surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of progressives who were arguing that Obama had an obligation to stop Trump from being elected even, um, and he had an obligation to spy on the Trump campaign officials to see if he could find any illegal activity to bring his campaign down because Trump is allegedly a fascist and a sitting president has – it's his – responsibility to protect the nation from a fascist getting elected after he leaves office. So they were defending – of course, that's not exactly the – that wasn't exactly the thinking behind it. I think it was just pure partisanship. But a lot of these progressives, they believe that anyone on the right – they believe conservatives are fascist and that stopping a conservative from being elected to the presidency is akin to stopping fascism. So if they're going to defend that, defend spying on Carter Page – they are, of course, are going to come out and brag about what they did to stop fascism after the fact. Go read it for yourselves right now when you get the chance. It's on Time Magazine. The title is – well, they've changed the title several, several times already, actually. The title as it shows up right now is The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. Even then, that language, saved the 2020 election. It saved the election from the people, and that's that's key. They believe, they believe in democracy – as long as you have a pre-approved slate of candidates who runs for office. If there's a candidate who is problematic, as they like to say, then obviously the cabal, which they admit you know, a cabal of industry leaders and activists exists, which is something that conservatives have been saying all along and they claimed it was a conspiracy. But then whenever you have an unacceptable candidate, 
It is the cabal's job to make sure that that candidate does not win elections. So this is the thing. They believe in democracy as long as their pre-approved candidates win. If you have someone who's problematic, then if the people want that person, you got to snatch that person away from the people. Okay, so I want to talk about this Morgan Wallen situation. This came. Uh, this news isn't new. Uh, he. This happened last Monday. So Morgan, for those of you that aren't country fans, Morgan Wallen is a country music singer. He was coming home with a bunch of buddies. He was. It was late Monday night or early Tuesday morning. I don't know when exactly it was, but so he's coming home with a with a bunch of buddies. They're all drunk as skunks, and he's stumbling up the steps to get to his house. He he can't even walk straight, slurring his words, and he tells someone, one of his buddies, "Hey, take care of this." P-A-M effort. And he says, hey, take care of this P-A, and he drops the N-bomb. And that's it. And then someone, his neighbor, recorded it, apparently on the, I guess on a house cam or whatever. I don't know if they were actually recording themselves, but they gave it to TMZ, and TMZ runs with the story the next day. Well, as a result, everything, like Morgan Wallen has completely lost his career. His agency suspended him. All of the streaming services, they stopped featuring his music. He's not allowed back in, on CMT. There's a country academy. I think it's the Academy of Country Music Awards, uh, whatever it's called. I'm not really much of a country fan, but anyway, the the Academy of Country Music is not going to let him, uh, I guess, compete for their award show or whatever. So, as predicted, he comes out and apologizes. This is it's just the typical rehearsed apology here from all these stars who get into trouble with the powers that be. He comes out and says. Uh, I, this is a word that should never be used. I, I apologize for uh, saying this. I promise to do better. And, of course, his lame apology did not save him. He still loses his career, loses everything. So the the thing that people were immediately jumping on saying is, oh, OK, well, this just shows that he's racist. And whenever people are drunk, their true side comes out. But, Eric, you were mentioning this. This was somebody else uh, recently. Uh, there was a situation where someone got upset at someone for – Dropping this in bomb with the light A at the end, you were explaining to me. Yes, is so, it some like it's it, it, like a gaming culture, a bro culture, or something? Here's the thing. So it's uh, that was in reference to a viral video of a white guy in some kind of a corner store, convenience store, a gas station store, obviously pretty drunk and frequently using it. So the key is that there's the version of it that ends with A, and there's the hard R where it ends with ER, and obviously where it ends with A is is the lyric you hear in rap songs all the time. Whereas ER is the racial slur, and he was just spouting, you know, it's gone, what's good, man? What's my good, man? You know, and and eventually this black guy standing behind him beats him over the head with a can of uh, iced tea or something, and just knocks him down, and then continues beating the crap out of him on the ground. And I saw that video, and probably in regards to this situation as well, I can tell, and I don't like using this phrase very often, but in this case it will apply. The guy in that viral video could be described as white trash. Uh, I don't know if that would apply to this country music star who's now also the subject of this controversy. But I saw that video and I thought to myself, that reminds me of so many guys I went to high school with. I went to high school in an area, uh, probably you could call it maybe a lower income area. Certainly a lot of the kids that I went to high school with, it was known as the more ghetto high school of my hometown. There were only two high schools. There was the upper class one and then the, the lower class one that I went to. And so many kids in my high school, and this is back in like 2009 to 2013, so early 2010s. So many kids would use the variation of the word with the A at the end to address each other in the halls. You know, what's good? And not just black kids, 
but white kids, Hispanic kids, they all use that word to address each other, you know, between other races, among the same races, and no one thought anything of it. That's just part of the slang. That's just part how, of how people talk. They don't mean anything. They're not saying, oh, let's go lynch some. Like, that's not what they're saying. That's just, again, I don't, I, I didn't use the word. I wouldn't use the word like that. But there are so many people who use the word like that. Among themselves and among their friends, that just hey, what's good? What's good? You know. Yeah. And so what's it, so Wallen is interesting. I mean, he's twenty seven. <clears throat> so this is kind of the time when he would have been in high school as well. This would you know this would have been late two thousands. This would have been the time he probably said this with his black friends. They all joked around about it and everything. So here's the thing: like this is something that in the late nineties, early two thousands, I this would have been completely foreign. To, like whenever I came of age, whenever I was you know old enough to know what was going on in the world. This is something that people just wouldn't have said because at the time – and this is probably because of gaming, because of the internet culture. you got to remember the late 90s, early 2000s, teenagers weren't involved in internet culture. There was really no internet culture to speak of, especially in smaller towns where a lot of these, these kids that you're talking about, the lower, uh, lower income, so-called white trash kids are. So there was no – you. your friends were your neighbors, you, the kids you played with. They, they, they were the ones that you got your vocabulary from. They were the ones that learned – you know, you learned your social mores, them and your parents. At the time, that word was only considered a pejorative. So if you were – if somebody used that word, they would only use it in the context in which they're referring to a black person as a POS. So in areas where we would call someone a POS, that's that would only be applied to black people. Now, here's why this is key. Because that word literally means a black person because it was taken from the Spanish word for black and basically uh, you know, change, just made easier to sound in English, it became a pejorative term to use only for blacks. This is why blacks get so upset about it because you can't really – it doesn't make sense if you use it toward a non-white person. So what was happening is you would have – blacks would use it like my dude. They would use it like a substitute for, hey, what's up, bro? Exactly. They would use it like that to one another because they're black, and it makes sense in that context because it literally means black. It it can't mean anything else. So if you tell that to a non-black person, it doesn't make sense. So the thing that they're arguing is if a white person says it, it only has holds its pejorative definition, whereas if a white person or if a black person uses it, they can be joking around with it. But even that, it, you hardly ever – I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, you hardly ever heard black people using it, at least in the town I grew up in. You just that, – that was something – like if somebody had said – if somebody – let's imagine that Morgan Wallen gets in a time machine and he goes back to – let's say he goes back 20 years to 2001 and he throws that term around. If the first you know around his white buddies, his white buddies would kind of look at him weird the first time he used it. The second or third time, they would have stopped him and said, "Wait a minute, what, why are you sound? Why are you trying to sound black?" That would have been the response. They said, "Why are you? Why are you talking like that? Why are you? You're white. Like act white." That would have been that would have been the response at that time. Cultural appropriation, right? Exactly, and it was kind of in an interesting way. You know, people at the time, no one would culturally appropriate that word. And then as time went on and you had white kids start playing around with – like start playing with black kids, whether through gaming, whether playing basketball, they started picking up the same words because technically, remember, we're supposed to be moving toward a colorblind society. So then everyone – the white kids assume, OK, well, we're all the same. There's no difference. So we're just going to pick up each other's lingo. We're just going to pick up each other's expressions. The problem is, especially older generations, don't really – don't they, they're not in tune to that. So if they hear a white person saying it – like back in the 90s, if a white person said it – they were literally cussing out a black person. That you were either trying to pick a fight with a black person, or you, you know, you only use that word to like a child molester, or a thief, or a murderer, or somebody who's just you know that you would literally cuss out and want to pick a fight with. Nobody used it in a joking manner. 
So th- this is something that people need to understand. There's a little bit of a disconnect and misunderstanding here. This is, but this is the natural result whenever you have white kids trying to be black. You got white kids who are listening to rap music because it's, it's like, why, why are you listening to that black music? That that would have been the response. So you didn't have white kids listening to black music. You didn't have them trying to talk black, sound black, act black. But now, because you got a whole generation, like Morgan Wallen's generation, has come up, and when it's which it's cool to do this to them, like saying that word is just like saying "dude" or saying "my man." Which is why his apology is completely insincere. He apologized because it's like somebody, you know, somebody took – it's almost like if you're – let's say you're working a job and they, there's the boss has some kind of dumb rule. Like uh, let's say you can't – I don't know. You can't bring a New York Yankees ball cap into his place of employment because he's a Boston Red Sox fan. If he sees a New York Yankees hat, you're going to be fired. Somebody brings a New York, you know, New York Yankees cap and they forget about it. He gets called into the office and they apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry I brought this cap in. No, they're not. They're sorry they got caught. They're, they're sorry, sorry they got caught. Exactly. They're sorry he's got this dumb rule that they have to abide by. They're just trying to keep their job. And that's what it is with Morgan Wallen's apology. Now, no, he's not sorry. But look, within the age of cancel culture, you can give all the apologies you want to. All that does is make you look weak. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. It proves that they have won, that right. they've dictated the parameters of the argument that you are now on defense. But it, I just couldn't help but you know, to add a little bit of levity to the situation. You mentioned you know, white kids basically trying to imitate black culture. I'm getting like PTSD style flashbacks to the kind of style I saw in my high school where lots of the white kids, yeah, they, they listen to rap music and stuff like that. But because I, I'm from a farming community, they also loved country music. So it was this perfect blend, mm-hmm. kind of like this guy's situation, a perfect blend of country culture and rap culture, which is why when that horrible song Old Town Road came out, <laughs> that was literally, I'm like, this is, thank God this did not come out when I was in high school. Because oh if it did, gosh. everyone everywhere would be playing this stupid song from their truck speakers, on their iPods, <laughs> everything. And I'm just like, but th- this is literally this the is, song that defines that kind of and style. And this is really part of what's, what's really ruined country music. I stopped listening to country music in 2013. I just couldn't stand it anymore. At that point, so like from 2013 until 2019, I was just completely checked out of the country music world. I didn't listen to any country. And if I did, it was like something from the 90s or something like that, back when country was real country. Yeah. And finally, in the tw- in 2019, you actually have like Luke Combs. You got, some, you got some artists who are coming out who are actually producing – Music that does sound country. They're finally getting away from the bro country. But that bro country was really just a bunch of a bunch of country white kids trying to act and sound black. And it really came out with the uh, Florida Georgia Line song uh, back in I think it was 2013. But they were I was remember I was working at Chick Fil A at the time and they were playing that song on their phones nonstop. I was like. This is this is the literal death of country music. Like this crap is so terrible. Country music has been through so much. It barely survived with Taylor Swift's attempt to kill it with country pop. Yeah, which that was a horrible phase, and it managed to come back from that. But the thing and is, like the, the pop Town music Road came along. And yeah, with, with pop music, you can actually cross over. With rap, there is no crossover between rap and country. It, 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 like in Old Town Road is the perfect example. It doesn't. It just doesn't jive. There's but, one country kind of rap style song in country music that is acceptable and that's jason aldean's dirt road anthem that is a good song that's it is kind of rapping like not quite like rap like you would think but it is still it's a country song but it's done in the style of rap and that's actually a very good song i enjoy Mm -hmm. that one a lot but i did speaking going back to the misunderstanding like a lot of people thought a lot of people genuinely thought that morgan wallen is just you know he's racist he doesn't like black people and because he's racist he uses this term which is probably what would have people would have justifiably thought if somebody used this term back in the 90s. But that, again, this is going back to a cultural and really a generational misunderstanding. And it's not just the generational misunderstanding. It's also a there's also a racial misunderstanding here. 
you gotta you gotta remember when white people and black people are separated, they live in separate communities. They're going to pass down whatever prejudices their, their their parents and grandparents had toward the opposite race, and this is a perfect example. Jimmy Allen is uh, he's a country singer. He happens to be black, and he gave an interview with Cody Allen with CMT's Cody Allen shortly after the George Floyd death. You've been my friend for a long time, and yeah. I always thought we had the most frank conversations. Like we were just lay it all out there, how yeah. I felt, how you felt. We've talked about some of these things before. So that's why I wanted to have you on because I watched that video of George Floyd like we all did. I had emotions, but I bet you had a unique set of emotions that were that, that only a person seeing it through your eyes uh, feels and sees. So when you saw that video, what did you think? Um, I pictured my son. Uh, I've seen a lot of videos, man. Uh, that was probably one of the worst ones I've, I've that whole videos that I saw where you see this guy get killed on camera. Like, for eight and a half minutes, he was already cuffed. You know, the guy has this knee on his neck, and you can see he keeps repositioning his knee. And I was like, wow, man, what is going through this guy's head? How messed up is his heart to not see this is somebody's brother somebody's son uh somebody's friend that he's purposely taken life of so notice he assumes that the officer chauvin i remember his first name who's kneeling on george floyd's neck he derek chauvin yeah he assumes that derek chauvin is purposely taking george floyd's life that's the assumption the assumption for most people when they see that is obviously you know, it looks like he's being – he's using police brutality. Nobody – I don't know of anyone – I've never talked to anyone who actually said that they assumed that Chauvin was purposely trying to take his life. That, that's that, that's a really weird choice of words he uses there. That's that, a heck of a jump you've got to make to make that assumption. Right, that Chauvin was purposely trying to take George Floyd's life. Uh, there's this guy who's actually just down the road in Charlottesville. He does a lot of YouTube commentary on country music. His name is Grady Smith. He was he put out a video on the Morgan Wallen situation. He mentioned uh, he was very generous, but you got to remember where you got to look at where he starts his assumptions from. He said, "Now this is a really sensitive. This is really sensitive, especially since 2020 was the year of George Floyd. So even this person who spends his life on YouTube, Grady Smith, he apparently hasn't taken the time. I mean, I'm just going to give him the benefit of a, of the doubt and say that he's not being purposely dishonest." But I'm assuming he hasn't taken the time to actually go look up the body cam footage from the George Floyd death and hasn't seen that the entire Black Lives Matter narrative in 2020 was based on a misunderstanding and it was used for political purposes. I mean all you have to do is go to YouTube and type in George Floyd body cam footage and the entire narrative, the entire – all these assumptions, including the assumptions that Jimmy Allen is making in this video, but this video came out just a few days after George Floyd's death are completely wrong. So why would he automatically jump to the conclusion and the assumption that Derek Chauvin was trying to kill George Floyd? Let's listen to what he has to say next. And I equate that to this, to where if you have no access to black people in your life and the only black people you see are on TV and they're robbers and they're murderers and the media pushes it this way and you see movies and you have a family that might tell you, okay, 
gotta be careful around black people. They do this, they do that. When the rest of the world slowly starts to wake them up, they have to unlearn everything that they've been taught, you know, and that doesn't happen overnight. Um, so they're trying to learn the new ways of everybody being equal and equality and we're, we're a lot more alike than we are different. And they're in their mind, like they could be hurt. Like, I can't believe my family did this to me, made me feel I was superior than this person. What world is <laughs> what world is this idiot living okay, in? Okay, so, so hey, listen, listen, listen oh. your your reaction, your reaction, right? Your natural reaction to what he just said, it would be the reaction of the vast majority of people in this country if they had heard what he just said. But the the thing is, most people who watched that YouTube video of his interview, most people who would have watched that or listened to that live, they already have started from the assumption that there's a huge segment of white people in America who raise their children like that. They've already started from the assumption that there's a huge segment of the American population that raises its children to believe that white people are superior to black people. And you've got to understand that some black people have been passing this propaganda down to their children and their children's children, their grandchildren. So when a black man sees a white police officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck, his immediate assumption is he's trying to kill him because he's black. Because they have been brainwashed to believe that there are white people out there who literally teach their children that you've got to be careful around black people and that white people are better than and superior to black people. I have never in my life ever heard of any – maybe there are some white people out there that uh, believe that. I've never encountered them, and I don't think that Jimmy Allen has either. Well, just the several leaps that he makes. First off, he says all these people who have been watching TV and movies and all the bad guys are black. I'm like, excuse me? I mean, I, I can name plenty of movies that I watched as a kid where the bad guys are not black. I can assure you where there are plenty of heroic black guys. Like, I, Just that assumption alone is wrong. Then he goes on to say – and then there's going to be white people who will wake up. You know, we got to reprogram. There it is again, the deprogram, reprogram. He says there are white people who are going to wake up and say, how can my family do this? I'm like, wait a minute. Didn't you just say it was movies and pop culture that did this? Now you're suddenly pinning it on the families? It's right, even right. worse. Now you're blaming the families for what they watch on TV? That's But uh, you, you got you to think about it. Most people, they just listen to music. And they don't think about who they're listening to, what the person believes, what the person thinks about them as human beings, as individuals. And you've got a bunch of country white kids. They're listening to Jimmy Allen's music, and they have no idea that this is what he believes about them because of the color of their skin. They listen to rappers, and they start using the lingo. They start using dropping the N-bomb, and then all of a sudden they get slapped in the face. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. I, I was just joking around. That's just like – that means dude or bro. No, no, no. See, the reason why the, the idea that there's a difference between that word with an A and that word with an ER is false. When black people speak and they use that word, that's just their normal accent. It's they learned English from people from people in Virginia in the 1600s. The Cajuns, right? Well, the Cajun accent morphed out of that, just like their accent did. But people in Virginia in the 1600s, just like British people today, they didn't pronounce their ERs. Any word that ended in ER, they pronounced it like it ended in A. So if a, if a British person pronounced the, the N-word, they would pronounce it closer to the way black people pronounce it than the way white Americans pronounce it. That's just their accent. So for black people, there is no difference between the word with an A or an ER because it's the same word. It has the same meaning. It's pronounced the same way in their accent. So when white people start pronouncing it like black people do, saying that it has a different meaning, black people are like, no, you, not only are you appropriating my accent, but you're also trying – you're using a word that's used to demean my people. So this is where there's a cultural disconnect. 
And so these rednecks, they listen to this rap music and they think, okay, well, I'll just use it like they use it. And they keep getting slapped in the face and it's like it's like over and over and over again. It's like I don't know how many times country fried rednecks are going to have to keep getting slapped in the face before they finally get it through their thick noggins that they're not welcome in black culture. So I don't know. Maybe Morgan Wallen's cancellation will be a wake up call to many of them that you're not just going to jump across cultures like this and everything's going to be hunky dory. No, there's there's significant amount. There's a significant amount of prejudice that exists. And Jimmy Allen is a perfect example of that. That interview is a perfect example. When you start with the assumption that there's a bunch of racist white people out there and you see a, a white cop kneeling on a black man's neck, you're just going to assume that the reason is racism. And a lot of people, they don't realize just how the industry thinks about them as far as I'm talking specifically about country music fans. So Variety, Variety Magazine went and talked to some of the executives at these companies that canceled Morgan Wallen. And it's very interesting what they have to say about their fans, because, of course, fans are writing in, calling them, saying, put him back on the air. You know, this is ridiculous. You shouldn't be giving into cancel culture. So they asked this one executive, what does the industry get uh, that many fans don't or won't? And he says, quote, what we're all hoping for, the collective we, the industry, is that we don't want to be the backwards genre anymore. There are a lot of great artists and great people in this genre. So to take the stance that we did collectively as an industry was important because it was time to move that forward. If the uh, if the fans understand that or don't. I don't think we control can control that. People can write comments on Facebook like F your organization all day, but that doesn't change our bottom line of what we have to do. So what's interesting, he says, what we're hoping for the collective is in the industry is that we don't want to be the backwards genre anymore. So get this. you got these people who run companies who run in Nashville, and they consider themselves the backwards genre. How are you supposed to successfully lead an industry if you think that that industry is backwards? It just shows what they it just shows the elitist mindset that they have about people who listen to country music. And they, they see themselves as the enlightened elites in Nashville and all these people out in the out in the country who listen to the music that makes them rich are just a bunch of backwards, idiotic rubes who need to be educated either with a carrot or a stick. And it starts with the same assumption that Jimmy Allen made. Country star Mickey Gutton, I guess I'm pronouncing that, G-U-Y-T-O-N, Mickey Gutton. Uh, this is from TMZ. Uh, so she says she's one of a small handful of well-known black singers in the genre. She spoke about uh, Morgan Wallen's situation, and she gave some – it says she gave some poignant insight, including an olive branch for Morgan himself. She writes, quote, when I read comments saying this is not who we are, I laugh because this is exactly who country music is. So, so this is a country singer. She's basically she is a country singer. And she says, when I read comments saying this is not who we are, I laugh because this is exactly who country music is. Why are you singing in a genre that's racist? Why are you putting out music in a genre if that you think is racist? So after Morgan Wallen was canceled, the fans basically gave a collective middle finger to his cancellation, which shows the another again, it just shows the vast divide that exists between industry elites and the consumers. His, on Wednesday, Wallen's digital sales increased from Tuesdays by 327%. When it came to album sales, the jump was a staggering 1,221%. I mean, I've, I don't think country music has ever seen a collective statement quite like this. I mean, this and this is just – I think people are – people are finally starting to get tired of it. You know, when it's politics, a lot of people can, can ignore – Politics, when it's music that they listen to, when it starts to bleed into entertainment, eventually people are going to get sick and tired of this cancel culture. And 
You know what? It's going to be interesting to see. I think I think um, I think he's going to cuck. I honestly think that Morgan Wallen is going to cuck because if, if you're dumb enough to use it, if you're dumb enough to have this word in your vocabulary, you were probably one of the naive youngsters who came up in the late 2000s, early 20 teens and didn't know anything about history, didn't know anything about race relations. So he's probably just going to do whatever he needs to. But I think eventually this is it, this is really the first time that we've seen an outcry like this against cancel culture on the consumer level. And I, I think. It's going to be interesting to watch to see just how much more of this people are going to take because it, it can't go on like this. Eventually, when they're continually policing speech, continually pol- uh, policing thought, they're continually just basically blatantly showing what they think about the pe- the common people in the country. Eventually, it's going to come back to bite them. It may not be this year. It may not be next year. But the, 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 the day of reckoning for these industry leaders uh, will be – will hit them in their pocketbook. Eventually, competition will arise yeah, that will sooner, yeah, dethrone sooner, these industry leaders. Sooner or later, they're going to overstep their boundaries. Sooner or later, the, enough people are going to finally stand up and say, OK, this is ridiculous. You know, Why are you trying to cancel our favorite singer or favorite actor? There's eventually – is going to be sizable pushback that – some celebrities won't be canceled as easily, but it'll be also the broader societal realization that, again, a phrase I think could be used to describe a lot that's going on in America right now being pushed by the left. This is not sustainable. You cannot just keep canceling everybody who disagrees with you or says a foul word every now and then because sooner or later you're just going to cancel everybody and you're going to have to cancel, cancel yourselves. You know that so many leftists have similar skeletons in their closet. They're just better at hiding it. Yeah, and just one more thing before we move on to our uh, featured topic. A lot of people love to bash cancel culture, and they'll complain about it. They'll you know make it they turn it into a political issue. But I think we need to we need to consider how exactly would you defeat something like this when you have essentially a cartel of elites who run every industry, and they decide they've pretty much already set up like the social credit system that exists in China. They've already set that up in the United States. It's just instead of instead of the government enforcing it, you have corporations who are enforcing it. One thing that's not helpful is conservative media because I've noticed conservative media, they actually have a financial incentive to keep cancel culture alive. And we see a perfect example of this. I don't know if you saw the interview on Newsmax in which they had the the MyPillow guy. What's his name? Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell. So they had Mike Lindell on and the host was asked, was talking to him about his, his pillows being canceled at Bed Bath & Beyond. And they asked him how long he thinks that's going to last. And Mike Lindell's answer was, I hope it's permanent. And then he went into why they canceled him, which was because of his beliefs on the election. And the news and the Newsmax host basically just walked off the set and told him, you know, we can't we can't do this. We can't talk about this because what it, what what the Newsmax folks wanted him to say was, well, you know, I sure hope it's I sure hope it's temporary. We really need to get a, get control of this. This cancel culture is really dangerous for our society. They want the viewers to continually come back to them, so they'll have all these people on their shows who have been canceled, and they'll give them an outlet to complain. And this doesn't change anything. This doesn't affect anything. It allows viewers to feel like they're being catered to by the conservative media. It allows the conservative media to make a bunch of money from these viewers. And it allows the canceled to feel like they have some sympathy and go air their grievances. But the people who have been canceled, they don't benefit from it. And potential entrepreneurs, they don't benefit from it because cancel culture is still there. The only way to end cancel culture is for parents, instead of encouraging their kids to get jobs, which is what they've been doing for two generations, you think about – the lower class people who are who are the targets of cancel culture, they've been encouraging their kids to go get jobs. Just go get a job. Well, instead of encouraging their kids to go get jobs, they need to encourage their kids to go start businesses, encourage their kids to become entrepreneurs, and encourage their kids to go be the industry. Don't you know? Don't suck off the industry. Go create your own industry. 
And that's how you're going to see cancel culture come to an end when you have parallel industries that these fascists who run our current industry aren't going to be able to compete with. It's just that ongoing, that never-ending political dynamic, dynamic that you do thrive economically. There is prosperity off of being the resistance, off of being the minority party. Like Republicans are great at this. Republicans are so much better. The right in general uh, up to this point is better at being the resistance, the opposition, than they are at being in power. We saw that, of course, during the first two years of the Trump administration when the Republicans in Congress sat on their hands and did absolutely nothing. From a political standpoint, that's true. But the Republicans are going to have to start taking that same attitude from a business standpoint. They have to be the corporate resistance because that's what that's why we have cancel culture, because social activists and uh, social justice warriors, they decided, you know what, we're not accomplishing anything by just screaming into a bullhorn. On a, on a street corner. Let's go create industry and force people to accept our worldview if they want to be able to put food on the table. But unfortunately, it appears that the Republican Party, at least the leadership anyway, is not any closer to making that big shift that needs to happen. Since the last episode where we previously talked about the growing divide in the House Republican Caucus with regards to Liz Cheney, the representative from Wyoming at large and the chair of the House Republican Conference, which is the third highest ranking position in the House of Representatives, who led nine other Republican representatives to vote in favor of the second impeachment of Donald Trump. And for this, of course, she was lambasted by the party grassroots. Early polling suggests that her support has already collapsed and that she would lose to a number of primary challengers in the 2022 election. And there were growing calls from within the House and certainly from outside the House to have her removed from her leadership role. So they did have a secret ballot last Wednesday among all House Republicans on whether or not to pass a vote of no confidence in Liz Cheney's leadership. Secret ballot, by the way, which is key here. 145 Republicans voted in favor of keeping her in power. 61 voted to remove her, even though previously over 100 Republican members of the House publicly voiced their support for removing her. So clearly what happened here is this should not have been a secret ballot, first of all. This should have been a public ballot because if this were a public ballot, you know she would have been removed. She would have lost that position because those Republicans would have to answer to their base, the voters who overwhelmingly still back President Trump and wanted to see Liz Cheney gone. Not And not just because it's, it's so fitting poetic justice that she is, of course, a Cheney. She is literally a relic of the old guard neocon yep. wing of the Republican Party that Trump thoroughly destroyed. So it's no wonder she wants him gone. She's hated him for being anti-intervention and anti-war for the longest time. But she survived largely with the backing of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who was just trying so hard to become Speaker of the House, who stood by her ultimately, even though he is trying to play both sides of this whole thing. This is what really bothers me the most. I'm actually even angrier. Not I'm, I'm angry at Liz Cheney. I'm even angrier at Kevin McCarthy. So because according he, to oh. Matt Gates, Kevin McCarthy told him – this is what Matt Gates said – that the reason why he decided to stick with Liz Cheney is because he felt like the Republican Party needed to be united going into 2022. That was his justification for it. How do you unite with Republicans who voted to impeach Trump? Okay, This isn't a matter of like uniting on, oh, let's do something about welfare or whatever. No, no. This is voting to impeach the most popular Republican president in modern history, which again – a vast majority of Republicans voted against, but 10 voted for. There's no unity with that. Well, you he's, can't, he's hedging his bets. He's betting he's, – he's keeping his bets, his cards closed just in case the Trump wing does not succeed in taking over the party. Which bothers me even further because, again, Kevin McCarthy very recently went to Mar-a-Lago and took a picture with President Trump 
thumbs up and everything. Then he turns around and does this and supports the woman who voted, the highest-ranking Republican who voted to impeach him. I'm sorry, but that's even worse. I would rather take Mitch McConnell, who at least has been honest in blasting President Trump and blaming him for the peaceful protests that happened in the Capitol on January 6th. Like, McConnell's making it very clear he doesn't like Trump anymore. He's not putting up a charade. McCarthy is trying to eat his cake and have it, too. He's going to Mar-a-Lago, taking pictures with Trump, saying, look, I stand with Trump. I Support me, MAGA base. I stand with Trump. Then I'm going to turn around and support a woman who voted to impeach Trump anyway. I'm going to keep her in my in my leadership team. Like, no, you cannot have it both ways on that particular issue, Kevin. You can't. This just proves to me what I have believed for the longest time. This can be said about a lot of California Republicans, at least elected Republicans of California. Obviously, plenty of voters in California are good people, Republican voters. But Republicans elected from California, by and large, like this guy, are snakes. They are frauds. They're chameleons. They're two-timers. They are hacks. That is all he is. He just so badly wants to be speaker. He was denied that position six years ago when Boehner first resigned and McCarthy was going to step up. And then one thing after another happened, and he was forced to step back, and Paul Ryan took it. And then he, Paul Ryan ended up not even doing much with it. So then McCarthy might as well have been Speaker during that time anyway. So now McCarthy feels like, oh, I'm six years late. I got I to try again. I really want to be Speaker, even though he does not deserve it. And frankly, as long as this guy is the candidate to hold the gavel, I hope they never get the majority back in the House. I would rather be a minority party in the House than have Kevin McCarthy hold the Speaker's gavel. He would be just like Paul Ryan. He'd be just like John Boehner. If Steve Scalise were the candidate for speaker, then I, I would I would support that. You know, I would support being willing to see a couple of rhinos elected or reelected just to give Scalise the speaker's gavel, but not McCarthy. No, McCarthy doesn't deserve it. He's not worth it. He's a fraud. And I honestly hope the sooner he and Cheney are both out of leadership and Scalise can get bumped up one more spot. Well, and that's not going to happen. That's that's not going to happen with the current the, the way the current makeup is. I mean, at, at the reason why he didn't vote against Liz Cheney. Is because again, like I mentioned before, he fears the media more than he fears the base. And as long as that's the case, until the base starts making more noise than the media, th- nothing's going to change. Uh, this this basically comes back to the the lethargy of the base. Exactly, and it is up to the handful of elected Republicans who actually care about the base to light a fire under their you know what's because and that you mentioned matt gates earlier and oh boy oh boy matt gates has been going after liz cheney and it is glorious now i i don't know how you feel jacob i i think we both probably agree we have mixed opinions about gates he obviously wants to run for president in 2024 i don't think he'd be a great nominee i still think he's a little too young not enough experience be a solid vp pick i'll give him that but if there's nothing else i think this guy is the number one best republican in the entire country when it comes to being an absolute flamethrower he went to wyoming liz cheney's home state for a rally outside the state capitol and oh man someone get ready for this you guys are going to love this this segment from gates's speech about liz cheney liz cheney taunts me for wearing makeup in my television appearances now makeup only hides the slightest imperfections of the skin it does very little to conceal the soulless corruption of Washington, D.C. You know, it's, it's pretty easy for me to get a little makeup off my shirt. Far more difficult for Liz Cheney to get the blood off her hands. Oh, yes. Yeah. best to foreign lands to knowable gain and personal profit. Oh, no, nice. 
So somebody, can someone please call 911? I think we just witnessed a murder. See, this kind of stuff, a speech, a speech like that would have gone over that well with Democrats in the early 2000s. If oh, he went back in you know, 10 years, 15 years, and he gave a speech like that to Democrats, they would erupt. Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember, yeah, Democrats absolutely, one of the big things in 2008 that they ran on, what Obama ran on, was anti-war. They said, we're going to end Bush's endless wars. Obama promised he'd bring all the troops home from Iraq and Afghanistan in one year, which, of course, he didn't do. But absolutely, that is one of the key tenets of this new MAGA coalition, this America First Party that the Republican Party must become, is that we must be anti-war. And frankly, there is no single name in America right now that is more synonymous with endless war, with the military-industrial complex, with sending Americans over to bleed in foreign lands, in distant sands, for oil, than the name Cheney. Yeah, and Crystal Ball, she's with, I believe it's MSNBC, am I correct? Yes. Okay, yes. Yeah, and that a, is her name, by the way, everybody. She that, had a really, real name. She had a really good segment on, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, on Cheney, how Cheney is coming out. And of course, Cheney gave her speech about how we are the party of Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump doesn't represent us. We need to stand for values. And she said, look, sorry, I just yeah, – give me a break. This is Liz Cheney, the daughter of Dick Cheney, talking about values, talking about how the Republican Party is returning. She's like, no, thank you. She's like, I don't like Trump. But uh, no, this isn't. This is no better than Trump. This is in fact worse. But yeah, I thought that was even like even some liberals are realizing that the, you know Trump bashing worked when Trump was in office with Democrats. Even the Lincoln Project, they got behind it. But now when Cheney Trump bashing just doesn't hold the same sugar for Democrats that it once did with Trump out of office. Exactly. And once more, it needs to be said: What does Cheney think she's going to get out of pandering to Democrats? Don't we remember? I'm pretty sure. They went after Bush and Cheney like the, like never before. Like prior, no Republican president before that, other than maybe Nixon, had undergone that much hatred and negativity from the Democratic Party. They literally called her father a war criminal for God's mm -hmm. sake. Like, yep. does she really think those people are going to suddenly love her because she's against Trump? Especially now, as you said, Trump is out of office. How much longer is that good grace going to last? I'd well, say not very long. It just shows how, how short of a memory people have. Which, which why is why kudos to Crystal Ball for. You know, th for remembering how she felt during the 2000s, because she, she even mentioned that she became activated politically be over the Iraq war. So at least there, are, it, it is good to see that there are some Democrats who still remember their opposition to the Iraq war. Yeah. So Cheney lives to warmonger another day. But on the same day, the whole of the House of Representatives voted on another Republican woman's fate. Marjorie Taylor Greene, elected last year from Georgia's 14th district, which is literally like an R plus 27 seat. It's one of the reddest seats in the entire country. She had been assigned to several committees. And I guess the Democrats decided they really don't like her. So they voted – they, the Democrats, the majority party, had a vote of the House of Representatives to remove her from her committees over the objections of Kevin McCarthy. This is actually – this is what's important first off about this vote. This is unprecedented in modern American politics. Usually if a member of the minority party is drawn controversy that could result in them being removed from their committees, the minority party they belong to will deal with them, the party leadership, because they pick who goes on the committees. They make that call. This is the first time that the majority party has overruled the minority party said, no, we think you do not have the right to make these decisions, personnel decisions for yourselves. We're going to vote to remove her from her committees. And 11 Republicans voted with the rest of the Democrats to remove Marjorie Greene 
from her committees. Well, now, that, that's not actually very surprising. Marjorie Taylor Greene did not really explain to people, to the media very well, that the, the views I mean, just to explain for people the reason why they removed her, she was kind of politically neutral when Trump won re-election in uh, 2016. In fact, she wrote on Facebook something to the nature of, OK, whatever, you know, red or blue, I just hope this president does well for America. So she was obviously – I don't – she may have even voted for Clinton. I don't know. Uh, she obviously was not a hardcore Trump supporter when he got elected. But in 2017, somehow or another, she became activated through the QAnon conspiracy. And she was a, a very staunch supporter of QAnon, spreading the QAnon propaganda. In fact, built her whole social media persona around being a QAnon supporter. And but in addition to that, she she li- I think she liked a Facebook post where that was talking about how wildfires in California were started by space lasers. She by, actually made the post herself. She made the post it. herself. About, yeah, about Which, Israeli space lasers creating well, no, wildfires. Hey, here's the thing. First off, we're, this is this is going to be fun because we actually have a bit of a disagreement on this particular topic. First off, that post that you referenced that a lot of people that actually got trending on Twitter, hashtag Jewish space lasers, people are running around saying, oh, Marjorie Green said Jewish space lasers caused the wildfires in California. She's an anti-Semite. That's not actually what she said. Now, I'm, I'm going to defend her here because I think this is fair game. She did mention space lasers possibly causing the wildfires, but she didn't say anything about Jews. Separately in this post, it's a very long paragraph with multiple different things thrown in there, almost like just like a conspiracy theory salad. At one point, she mentions the Rothschilds who are Jewish. They're a Jewish banking family. And she, something along the lines of maybe mentioning, oh, they have a vested interest in green energy or something. I don't know. But she mentions the Rothschilds separately from the space lasers. But somehow the media has taken those two completely unrelated things, two and two separate, putting them together to say, oh, she's talking about Jewish space lasers, which is just, it's ridiculous. You can criticize her for things that were said in that post, but to exaggerate to such a gross degree is just unnecessary, and it undermines it undermines their argument. But in addition, and it makes me want to defend her. But in addition to that, she in a Facebook video in 2018, she said, and now we were told that a plane allegedly hit the Pentagon. We don't have Did, any actual yeah. proof of that. We, yeah. We've never actually seen a plane in the Pentagon talking about 9-11. So the question that I think was on a lot of people's minds was, does she still hold these views today? That was the question that was on a lot of people's minds. I think a lot of it was unclear to a lot of people whether or not she held these views today. Now, if I'm in Congress and there's a member of Congress who holds these views, even if they're in my own party, I'm going to vote to remove them from committee and I'm going to try my best to get them primary to get them out of my party during the next election. If they have now, if they held these views in the past and they make it clear that they no longer hold these views, they were misled. It's okay, you know, it's whatever. You know, that was then. This is now. But she never really forcefully communicated that she doesn't hold these views anymore. And so I can understand why there was some mis- – it wasn't just about her making controversial statements in the past. It was There was the question mark of whether she actually believed this herself. And I overheard a conversation in D.C. about a month ago. There were a couple of young Democrats. Apparently they were Democrats because they were talking about how people were pointing out AOC as being the crazy one in their party. They said our party. They said, well, you know, now you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene. So there's no comparison between AOC's crazy and Marjorie Taylor Greene's crazy, which, by the way, just for people that don't that don't know who haven't you know, who aren't from D.C., most people in D.C. don't like AOC. 
uh, most of the Democrats around here, they're not – AOC is not very popular. They here. only dislike her as far as that she clearly does not show respect, I guess, all due respect, to Nancy Pelosi. And Correct. You know, but also, why wouldn't she? But I also they're her. not – most of the people around here are very institu- uh, very much neoliberals. They're not socialists. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, d- I digress. But anyway, so they were, talk- they were pointing out how Marjorie Taylor Greene makes AOC look normal. And I didn't know who Marjorie Taylor Greene was at the time. Like I didn't really pay super close attention to who won the House races in the twenty in the twenty twenty election. And then later, about a week later, I heard on Bloomberg Radio they mentioned that Marjorie Taylor Greene believes in QAnon. They, that she believes that a plane didn't hit the Pentagon. All this other stuff that she believes. And they said that Nancy Pelosi is trying to get her off of her committee assignments. And in a very liberal and unbi- a very liberal biased way, they basically said we hope that Nancy Pelosi succeeds. So I'm hearing this. I'm thinking, why isn't Marjorie Taylor Greene suing Bloomberg into oblivion? She could be getting. She could be raking in hundreds of millions of dollars for this kind of defamation. And I'm thinking. Oh, and then I look it up. Look her up, and every news outlet is reporting that she believes this stuff. And I'm. I'm thinking, why is she not taking any action? She could become her campaign coffers could fill from all the money she would get by suing these folks for defamation. And the reason is because she never pushed back against it. In 28 in 2000 August of last year, she gave one interview with Fox in which she kind of hinted that she gave up the QAnon stuff in 2018 by saying. "Quote: I decided to go in another direction." Which? What does that mean? That, that doesn't that doesn't clarify yeah. anything. Yeah. No, I won't disagree with you that she has not been the greatest at messaging in responding to this forcefully and pushing back against the narrative. But I'm still going to defend her and certainly say she did not deserve this, if only because not only, like I said, it's a dangerous precedent that the majority party now says, "No, we dictate who's on the minority on the committees from the minority party." Furthermore, they're doing this because of things she said. Before she was elected, I disagree with that. I no, and I I disagree with that because it, it doesn't matter. I think it does not matter. It'd be one thing if she is an elected member of Congress and uses that platform to say these things. That'd be one thing. But she clearly does not. She will not defend those comments anymore. She's made it clear she, you know, she has said something along the lines of, "I said a few things I probably should not have said," with no specific references. No she's specific still, references. No, but either way, she clearly is not going to continue saying these things in Congress. She's gonna be be better, I guess you could say when. I, and I do think, yeah, as you said, people draw the comparison. What about her versus AOC? I would go further than that and say, what about her versus Ilhan Omar? As long as you have someone like Ilhan Omar in Congress who, as a member of Congress while in office, said, among other things, she described 9-11 as, quote, some people did something. She said, it's all about the Benjamins, baby, about the Israeli lobby. Literally said, Israel has hypnotized the world. She, at a rally in front of the United States Capitol in, I think, 2019 – as a member of Congress, a Black Lives Matter rally on the east face of the Capitol took the stage, took the podium, took the microphone, and declared as a sitting member of Congress, and I quote, America is not going to be a country for white people, end quote. She says these things while in office, and she gets off scoffery and gets praised and is still on her committees with nothing more than a slap on the wrist, not even a slap on the wrist from Pelosi or any of the other people. She gets to do whatever she wants and say these blatantly racist and anti-American things, racist against Jews and against white people, and blatantly talk about how much she hates America and nothing. But Marjorie Green, oh, she said a few things back before she was in office. And we got to take take her off all her committees. This is, and here's the thing too: why I th- I got to disagree with you. Why I think we should stand behind Marjorie Green because this has happened before. People have made the comparisons. I think rightfully so. She's the new Steve King. She's the female Steve King. <laughs> Come be, on. be still, be still my beating heart because I love Steve King. He's my favorite member of Congress of all time. But 
They did the same thing to him. The New York Times smeared him with a false accusation. He came out. He actually did better on his messaging than Marjorie Greene did as far as I'm concerned. He explained very articulately what he really said and how the New York Times twisted around his wording to make it sound a lot worse than what he said. Didn't matter. The Republicans still completely threw him off a cliff. And one of the first people actually to come out against him and demand he be primaried was our buddy Ben Shapiro, who publicly called for him to get primaried. Of course, he did get primaried. Rest in peace. But they did it to him. They're doing it to Marjorie Greene. They're already gearing up to go after next. They're already tying her directly to Marjorie Greene. Lauren Boebert from Colorado. They're going after her next. They're calling her. AOC is basically saying this woman is threatening to kill me because she wants to be able to carry on Capitol grounds because she has an open carry license already in her home state of Colorado. Her main thing is the Second Amendment. That's how she got famous. So they're going after Boebert next. Who else are they going to go after sooner or later? And you take one look through the Lincoln Project's Twitter feed, and I know you could argue maybe they're an outlier, but the Lincoln Project is already declaring that Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik from New York, among others, describe both of them as seditionists. Really? Kevin McCarthy and Stephanie, two of the most milquetoast Republicans, seditionists, sooner or later, they start with the Steve Kings and the Marjorie Greens and the Lauren Boberts. They will eventually get to the McCarthys and to the other Republicans in the House. They will come for all of them. So if we don't <laughs> hold the line now and defend these people, sooner or later, as I know, if there's one thing that can be said about the left over the last couple of years, certainly the last decade, but especially the last couple of years, It's that they have proven that the slippery slope is no longer a rhetorical fallacy to be made in debates or arguments. It is empirical fact. It is a tactic of theirs. Within a few years of the legalization of gay marriage, we have seven-year-old trans kids. Within one year of Alex Jones getting completely deplatformed, banned off every social media platform, they banned Donald Trump while he was still in office as president of the United States. You don't have to like Alex Jones to support him. I'm not saying I like Alex Jones. But to see that they went that quickly from this nutjob conspiracy theorist to censoring the president of the United States. Okay, well, a lot, a lot there, a lot to unpack. But let's back up to you mentioned sedition. You mentioned calling for violence. Marjorie Taylor Greene at a rally said, told her supporters that Nancy Pelosi is a traitor, and you know what we do to traitors. This it shouldn't be any surprise then when I'm on my way to the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of people saying that the people who don't support sending the ballots back to the states are traitors and that we need to hang them all along Pennsylvania Avenue. It shouldn't be any surprise then when you have QAnon supporters running into the Capitol then claiming that we need to hang the traitors, building a gallows in Washington, D.C. When she's putting out rhetoric like this, saying that Nancy Pelosi is a traitor, you know what we do to traitors. I don't think she knows what the legal definition of, tra- of treason is. That's why she would say reckless – give reckless rhetoric like that. But at least the, the Democrats have been saying the same thing about Trump, calling Trump a traitor. And how many Democrats – Maxine Waters, one of the most infamous examples where she's at a rally with a bunch of her supporters and saying, you know, if you see a, Trump, a member of the administration in a restaurant or gasoline station, you push back on them and tell them they're not welcome anywhere, anywhere near us. You push back on them. They're there's, calling for violence. They were doing this years a, ago. There's a significant – difference between telling someone they're not welcome and wanting to threaten basically riling up a mob to go hang them that's what the democrats have done though they've called trump a traitor too they've repeatedly how many times do they call trump a and, traitor? and we attack or, the or democrats others. for that we attack the democrats when they do that we, we, we condemn the democrats when they do that it's not like we're not saying anything when democrats don't do it but moving back to the you mentioned the going back to the the communication like steve king you said that steve king did a better job we can agree on that steve king did a better job communicating than marjorie mm-hmm. taylor did, uh, yeah. Green did and defending himself Okay, well, I don't think that Marjorie Taylor Greene's failure to defend herself is based in her incompetence. I think I think it's very strategic and done on purpose. 
Here's the thing. You mentioned out how they were talking about uh, – she's claiming that Israeli lasers, whatever, started California wildfires. No, she said space lasers that they claimed she from said the Ra- Jewish Ra- because child, she yeah. didn't say it's from the Rothschilds. They were two separate points, but they connected those two very lazily. It was very – it's well done on their part, but, but it was wrong. But the point is they were making that connection. That is easily grounds for defamation. That is an easy grounds for defamation suit. She's not filing any defamation suits. In fact, she's not even – and whenever you listen to her interviews – Whenever she goes on TV, goes on radios, podcasts, she doesn't even mention any of this stuff. When she's asked about it, she skirts around the issue, and here's why. She has been raising a ton of money from her supporters by running on the running on the theme that I'm being attacked for having supported Trump. I'm being attacked for being one of you. I'm being attacked because I stand up for conservative values. And the more she, the more she milks these attacks, the more she ignores the issue of her statements, the more she's attacked, the more she's attacked and the more she's attacked, the more money she can raise from her constituents. I'm getting hit because I made the mistake of donating to the Trump campaign. I'm getting spammed constantly by the RNC from these candidates who are sending out massive text messages soliciting money. Marjorie Taylor Greene is among them, and she's using these attacks to raise money. Yeah, so, you're not wrong. I, I do follow her on Telegram. Every other post from her is posting about, like, donate here to join the fight. Like, yes, yeah, she absolutely is raising money. She's a politician. That's what they do. But I think her point, oh, they're attacking me because I'm MAGA. I'm America first. I support Trump. She's right. No, I, that she's is not the, right. That is the reason they're going that after her. That is not her. the reason they're going after her. Absolutely it is. No, it's why, not. They're, why else? They're go- why else? They're going after her because they think she's a QAnon supporter. Hey, they're also calling Lauren Boebert a QAnon supporter. They, they claim Trump is a QAnon supporter. They, that's no, they another don't. smear they do. They, they don't claim that Trump is a QAnon. Nobody ever claimed that Trump was a QAnon supporter. They're going after her specifically because she very explicitly supported QAnon. So here, going back to what I said earlier, if there's a member of Congress who I believe is a QAnon supporter, I'm voting to remove them from their committee assignments, even if they're in, on the same team as, I on, as, as I'm on. And the reason why they still thought that she was a QAnon, here, all, all she had to do, all Marjorie Taylor Greene had to do was back in November when people were saying she's a QAnon supporter after she won election, she could have gone on CNN. She could have gone on Fox News. She could have gone on every single media outlet. She could have put it on. She could put it out on social media that she is not a QAnon supporter. How hard would it have been for her to say, "I'm not a QAnon supporter"? If somebody is accusing you of being a white supremacist, do you ignore it? No, you just say, "I'm not a white supremacist." Now, are they going to keep accusing you of being it? Okay, they may, but yet at least you could go on record and say, "This is not what I am," and move on. Well, she never did that. The problem with that is, though, and this is another rare point where I will cite something Ben Shapiro said in a positive manner. He says, if someone calls you a racist, you don't even acknowledge that because that's if you then start arguing whether or not you're a racist. Like, no, I'm not a racist. You're letting them drive the narrative and control the conversation because the debate should not be whether or not you're a racist. The debate should be whatever the policy disagreement was that led to them calling you a racist just because they don't like you. So, no, absolutely, yeah. If they accuse you of being a white supremacist, if someone accused me of being a white supremacist, I'd immediately disregard it and not even answer because – I'm not going to grace a stupid question with an answer because it doesn't deserve it. Here, here's the difference between that analogy. So basically what Marjorie Taylor did, if we're going to compare white supremacy and QAnon, this is the equivalent of what Marjorie Taylor Greene did in that situation. In 2018, she said, I am a racist. And now she gets elected and they're saying she's a racist and she ignores them. So it's not like they're accusing you of being a racist for holding a policy position. You said you are a racist back in 2018. You get elected and they're saying she's a racist. And you keep mum about it. You don't say anything about it. That would be a different situation. This is the situation not, with but, QAnon. But I don't – because, again, QAnon is you – can, you can bash QAnon all you want. Yeah, it's stupid. But I still do not think that that is a reason, even if she was a QAnon supporter. I am – as long – A, as long as the Democrats still allow 
outright anti-white racists, literal jihadi sympathizers like like Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, or other radicals who obviously have racist tendencies against white Americans or just anti-American views in general like AOC, as long as they have people like that in their party and who not only are in their party – like they're not ostracizing them like they are Steve King or Marjorie Green, but they are elevated and have positions of influence in the party. I don't want to hear it. We should play the same rules they play and defend our own so-called quote-unquote radicals until and unless they start excommunicating theirs. Okay, so if we look at this from a pro from a pro Republican, pro conservative position, since we we are conservative nationalists, I see Marjorie Taylor Green as a liability for the Republican Party because what she does is she gets supporters who would normally be the bulwark of defense against a radical leftist corporatist regime to focus on giving her money because she's being attacked by the left. So moving forward, what does Marjorie Taylor Greene fight for? So far, she's not fighting really for anything. She's just fighting against something, basically like AOC. AOC is really a lot of people, a lot of progressives are waking up to the reality that AOC is a liability, that she's not really accomplishing anything. Her big beef is I hate Republicans, and that's basically what Marjorie Taylor Greene is turning into. Just vote for me. I hate Democrats. I'm being attacked. You know, Support me because they're coming after me because they hate you, all that stuff. We don't need that. We need somebody who is going to, add, to articulate policy positions and move the Republican Party in a direction that's going to help Republican voters. And I just don't see Marjorie Taylor Greene doing that. But I, she may prove me wrong. I see. I see where you're going with that. I mean, A, I will admit, yes, her raising a ton of money. Could be problematic if only because, like I said, she's in one of the deepest blood red districts in the entire country. So she doesn't need money. She's never going to lose, honestly, whereas a lot of that money could go to candidates in swing districts. But to the further point, she's in a red district, R plus 27. Her job is not to necessarily sway moderate voters or give policy stands. Her job is to fire up the base with red meat because she's in a deep red district. And there certainly are others, Republicans, who are good at that, who do tout certain issues. Again, Lauren Boebert, who is seen as very much adjacent to MTG, they tied her to QAnon as well. Her big issue is the Second Amendment. She has at least that one big issue that she stands for. That's what she got elected on. That's her thing. But again, they're going after her next. They are already targeting Lauren Boebert over she refuses to obey the metal detectors rule. Oh, she's like AOC literally says she wants to open carry. She must be trying to kill me. Stupid stuff like that. They're so what is, what is MTG's big issue? I, I acknowledge, yes, yeah, she does not have a big issue, but that's not necessarily her job any more than that's not – I don't know what's another Republican. Like Steve King. Steve King didn't necessarily have a core issue. I mean he did talk a lot about immigration and multiculturalism, but at the end of the day yeah, – that was his issue. That was his That was his issue, issue but at the end of the day, Republicans in these deep red districts, their job – like another – a good example is like Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana. Obviously not that John Kennedy. Republican who was in a deep red state like Louisiana – you ever see him on Fox News? You ever see like some of the sound bites he gives? He is one of the greatest that just he's an older guy with that, that Louisiana accent, but he's so great at roasting people. Like he talks about Oh yeah, he is jo- good at that. I he's so good. Like he just the other day he was talking about John Kerry talking about global warming. And he's like, Come on, put the bong down, man. What's wrong with you? Like just, he just says stupid <laughs> yeah, stuff yeah, like he's, that. He's one of the best in the he Senate, for ha- sure. He doesn't have an issue. He's just great at roasting Democrats or firing up the base and getting people yucking it up over a great soundbite. Some Republicans are better in that role and i think marjorie green is certainly better in that role so her she doesn't role, need to be a policy she's she's she fires up the base all right but it's the wrong base that she's firing up with her antics i don't know as far as i'm concerned the only wrong base are the never trumpers the lincoln project types you know the, the evan mcmuffin voters the people that again and i think where we disagree here we we both agree there needs to be 
cleaning house in the Republican Party. You think it needs to be from the, the far right flank. No, no, I no. That's not necessarily first. true. I, I agree. We agree that the clean, the house cleaning needs to come from the from the, like the Liz Cheney's and all of them. The Cheney's, the 10 who voted to impeach Trump, and I think the 11 who voted to remove Marjorie Greene as well should also – because there was some overlap between those people and those who voted to impeach Trump. I mean, I don't see the same. I don't really see those as the same issue. I mean, yeah, there was some overlap, but uh, again, with the Marjorie Taylor Greene issue, whenever you're making it, she's becoming a celebrity with the former QAnon people and the people who are still clinging to hope that Trump is going to somehow return, like they're like the second coming of Christ and take over the government. And the the problem is, we, we need people in Congress who are going to educate people in those districts. And, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier: why QAnon came into why why it spread so uh, far and wide. And Marjorie Taylor Greene actually hinted at this whenever she gave her "I regret" speech on the floor of Congress. She said that people don't trust the government. I didn't know what to believe. I didn't know the me- what to believe in the media. This was when the Russian collusion hoax was going on, and I got sucked into the QAnon thing. And this is what ended up happening: people just turned off the news. They stopped. They got tired. People don't want to get bashed. People don't want to go, turn on the news and have these anchors and pundits bash them and the people that live around them, that, that look like them, that talk like them. So they just turn it off, and then they end up getting their news from these wacky conspiratorial websites that we covered in our second episode. And so it's not it's – not, it it's understandable why people would fall into QAnon. But, but what I, we need are politicians or we need Republicans who are going to be able to educate these voters and explain to them – you know, look, QAnon is wrong. It's not. It's not correct. And be able to focus that because there's a lot of energy that went into. They need to focus that energy into reforming immigration, into getting some policy, some good policies in that will help families grow. Ending like, wars. Yeah, they need to refocus that energy in that direction rather than just support me, give me money because I'm being attacked by the radical left. That's that's not that's not helpful. Right. I, I get what you're saying, but the bottom line is these Republicans who, yeah, you say they're tired of being attacked. But they, the Republicans who bash Marjorie Greene and who vote to impeach Trump and all these things, they're virtue signaling to the media for what? What do they hope to get out of it? Especially Mitt Romney is a perfect example because obviously now, yeah, he's one of the leading anti-Trump Republicans. He's probably he's going to vote to impeach Trump again. I am old enough to remember 2012. It was my first presidential election. I actually was not even old enough to vote in the primary, but I was old enough to vote in the general. I remember when Mitt Romney back then, squeaky clean Mormon grandpa in his 60s, was the nominee. He had been a missionary. He was a businessman, all that stuff. And they still – let's see. What do they accuse him of? They accuse him of being an animal abuser. They literally accuse him of killing a woman. They ran that uh, campaign, that cartoonish caricature ad of a Paul Ryan lookalike literally pushing an old lady in a wheelchair off of the Grand Canyon. They still did all these things to Mitt Romney of all people. If they could do that to Mitt Romney who look where he is now – they will do that to literally every Republican. So this idea, oh, if we just get rid of the, the QAnon, the, the so-called radicals, they'll be nice to us. No, they won't. They will still hate all of us for being Republicans. They will still hate even the ones who voted against Marjorie Greene. They'll, they'll give them a little pat on the head and maybe a spot on CNN for like five seconds. And then they'll go back to saying, well, Republicans are the party of Trump and they're traitors and 74 million voters who voted for Trump are domestic terrorists. It's never going to stop. And if you give them just a little bit of an inch, like I said, it's slippery slope. Give them even an inch, they'll take 3,000 miles out of it, and we can't let them do that. Look, the goal is to bring – get people to vote for a nationalist, and you're not going to convince people who are who are apolitical, who are normies to vote for your candidates or your party if you've got somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene running wild. They're just going to point to that and say, no, I don't want to be a part of that party. I don't want to, I don't want to join any of that. Well, I mean how can you defend that? Because you can't. The thing with Steve King is you can defend Steve King. 
you can defend. His only crime is that he basically held the same opinions on immigration and those key issues that Trump would eventually go on to hold. Right. You can you can defend Steve King. You can't defend Marjorie Taylor Greene on any of this stuff. There, there's not there's literally none of the stuff that you can defend her on unless you want to just say, OK, well, she should have been more communicative. But again, we have a disagreement about why you, you seem to think that the reason why she didn't communicate better was because why she was incompetent. She didn't know how to. How to talk? I mean, what was the reason behind that? I, I, she's, this is her first time being elected to Congress, so that certainly could be a reason. She just doesn't yet know how to communicate well. That that could be a reason. I don't know. You're, you're right. Maybe you're, you have a point that maybe she does still believe this stuff. I don't know. But the bottom line is that should not be that should not justify her being removed from her committees by the majority party with the president that sets. And again, for things she said. Before she was elected, could you imagine if we could punish office holders for things they did before they were elected? Well, wait a minute. Are you saying that if she if she still believed that stuff, that she should still keep her committee assignments? I don't know, honestly. I mean, I the Republican leadership made those calls to put her on the committee. So if McCarthy or whoever, the steering committee, whatever, put her there, they saw it fit. That's their choice. It's not like I voted for her to be on a committee or something. And furthermore, this the people who voted for her. Voted for her to represent them. So this is also really screwing over her constituents as well, just like what they did to Steve King. That's <laughs> Which what, makes that's me wonder, do the people, do the constituents of that district believe, are they mostly QAnon supporters? That's they overwhelmingly voted for her against like eight other Republicans and then a runoff election with her one-on-one versus another Republican. That's so what's clearly, worrying to me. They, I mean at the end of the day, who are we to tell them who they can and can't vote for? Uh, that's true, but I'm just wondering, uh, did they not uh, – I'm willing to believe that most of the people, Republicans in that district may have been QAnon supporters, which speaks to a bigger problem – and our ability to communicate and explain issues and what we stand for. Like I said, I would – and I – even if that is true, I still personally would not consider that nearly as big of a threat as the constituents who saw fit to elect and reelect a literal jihadi sympathizer like Ilhan Omar. Like call me – sorry, call me oh, yeah, racist. I mean, I agree. That's I, a much bigger threat. No, I agree opinion. with that. But my, my concern is that when you, have a, when you have a base of voters that are easily falling into some of the dumbest conspiracy theories out there – who literally think that the TVs are going to go black before Joe Biden takes the oath of office and Trump's going to send in the military and take over. We we need people elected who are going to be able to uh, – we need people who are going to communicate to their constituents the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene does often. But we need that communication to be educational, to explain to them the way AOC – you know how AOC communicates to her constituents. She'll be at home in her apartment. She'll be cooking and she'll explain what they do in Congress and stuff like that. The, even the way the, – who's the, the one-eyed bandit from Texas uh, that we can't stand? Uh, the, Dan Crenshaw. Dan Crenshaw. He, so the reincarnation much, of John McCain. Right. As, as much as I can't stand Dan Crenshaw, he does do a very good job of communicating to his constituents on social media. We need somebody like that from like the, the 14th district of Georgia to explain to these people that obviously don't know any. And here's an example. I'll just give you a perfect example. I had um, I was in Alabama. This was in June, actually. And I was talking to a, an older gentleman. Well, I say older. He's older than I am. He's in his 50s, but he has a construction company. And he was just starting to get red-pilled on politics. And he knew that I lived – I, I political science was my minor. I knew a little bit about this stuff. And he asked me, Jacob, what's the difference between the House of Representatives and the Senate? And at that point, I'm like, okay, I didn't even know where to start. So I'm thinking, wait a minute. So this guy, he's a successful businessman. He owns a company. He's He probably is worth seven figures. And he's just now in his 50s starting to watch Fox News, whereas beforehand I don't think he consumed any news, any political news. And he's asking me what the difference between the House of Representatives and the Senate is. And I'm like, so if this is the base, conservative – Elected members of Congress need – they have a responsibility to br- educate that base to be effective voters because 
obviously, like, look, the heartland in America, they understand that they're under attack by the corporations, by the industry, by the media. They understand that they all that these industry leaders, they want to Morgan Wall and all of them, but they don't really know how to fight back. They don't know what to believe, what direction to go in. And a lot of them wouldn't even vote under normal circumstances unless a Trump or a Marjorie Greene came along. I would argue that <laughs> unless a Trump came along, I don't know. I mean, the the thing they is, vote for Trump, and then Marjorie Greene comes along and says, "Hey, I can be like Trump from your district." And again, I'm not necessarily that excuses everything, but the bottom line is, say a lot of these people, these rural voters, again, especially in Georgia, a state where voter fraud is a problem now, and we probably need to turn up as many of these people as we could. Whatever can turn these people out to vote for Trump, because when he comes back in 2024, assuming he's the nominee and he runs again. You gotta get, because especially these same people who now think they'll throw their hands up and say, well, they're just gonna steal the election. We might as well not vote again. No, we want those people to come out and continue to vote. Well, of course we want, it. we want them to come out and continue to vote, but the problem is after they vote and the media industrial complex attacks the person they voted for, they don't know where to go for their information. And so when people start throwing up false information, that confirms their biases. They believe the false information, even if it leads them off a cliff, like we saw on January sixth. So, the, the I see Marjorie Taylor Greene as an opportunist who jumped on board the QAnon stuff and wrote it to Congress. And now, once she's elected to Congress, rather than doing something productive to bring these people along, you know, in a more productive direction that can actually help the party win elections in the future, she's instead doubling down on. Just Sarah Palin type stuff. I mean, Sarah, <laughs> oh, what, what, did, what did Sarah Palin? Sarah Palin was just as popular with Republicans, especially in Alaska, at least, especially middle aged Republican women as Marjorie Taylor Greene is in her district. But what did Sarah Palin ever accomplish other than making a bunch of money selling books? I mean, the bottom line is, yeah, you're not necessarily wrong. I can see where you're coming from. But the bottom line being she didn't even get a chance to start doing anything or be communicating on any issue or anything before they suddenly slammed her with this. The first thing she actually did, I think, as a member of Congress, was she impeached, art, introduced articles of impeachment against Joe Biden, which I think is a, is amazing. I mean, that's never going to pass in a Democrat House. But she didn't even have a chance to get started before they threw this at, they threw the book at her. And again, Lauren Boebert is next up. And then who else is going to come after Lauren Boebert? Who, who knows? They're going to keep going. Once they get one scalp, they're not going to stop. Well, like like we said, like I said, I mentioned off air. I, I just uh, we don't want to because of time. We don't want to take up people's too, too much of people's time. But like I mentioned before, uh, Republicans rather than using the slippery slope analogy, they need to stop and think. Okay, why did they get that? Why did the Democrats get that scalp to begin with? What can we do? What what could we have done differently to avoid them taking that scalp rather than circling the wagons? Even tighter. We need to we need to stop and figure out where we made a mistake because they didn't come after in just any Republican. They came after her specifically. And the news media, the news look, the news media loves Marjorie Taylor Greene. She gives them the same kind of ammunition that AOC has given Fox News since 2018. And this is the problem, you know, because they're going to be focusing on Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're going to be able to they're going to be able to use Marjorie Taylor Greene the same way and the anti-Marjorie Taylor Greene sentiment the same way they use the anti-Trump sentiment. So rather than focusing on issues, they just focused on Trump. Rather than focusing on issues, they just focused on Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is the problem I see in her. I see the point you're making, but again, I would simply argue from what we've seen in the past, they will do this to literally any and every Republican that crosses their path. They're already doing it. Josh Hawley is another perfect example. The dude is a star in the America First movement. He's already positioning himself very nicely to be a front runner for 2024. Young guy, good-looking guy, very great speaker. If you ever listen to him speak, he's got a great speaking voice. 
they're trying to get him expelled from the Senate because he was the first senator to vote to object to the Electoral College results. And they're also going after Ted Cruz. They are going to go after every Republican who has a chance at actually being a real threat to them until the only ones left are the Romney types. And even then, they're still going to attack the Romneys when they feel like it. They're never going to stop. That's my argument. Again, you can say what you want about Marjorie Greene. I'm not even – yeah, I like her enough. If if some of the stuff is true, then yeah, I'll be a little more hesitant. But solely for the good of the party and for realizing what their goal is, what their end game is, for that reason alone, I would rather stand by her and defend her every step of the way. I would rather have a Marjorie Greene who whatever she says and does before she's elected to Congress, you know she will be loyal. She will vote in support of Trump. She'll vote in support of the MAGA agenda and the America First agenda versus a squished Republican – like the 10 who voted to impeach Trump or the 11 who voted to remove her or the Romneys, the handful, the five or however many Republican senators who will vote to impeach him in the trial. And that is all I care about is we've got to have that unity. We need that unity. And you're way more likely to have that unity when it's behind Trump and you expel the never Trump movement, which is much smaller than the pro-Trump faction. That's my final analysis on it all. I maybe will maybe things will change in the coming future with regards to Marjorie Greene and the ongoing House Republican dynamics. We will see, but that is definitely all the time we have left for this particular episode. It was a lot of fun, to say the least. Uh, tune in next week for episode number eight. Talk to you next week, guys.